Hello, good afternoon. My name is Joseph Strauss. I am an emeritus director of the Max Planck Institute for Innovation and Competition. And I'm also a professor at the University of South Africa in Pretoria, uh, a professor, a visiting professor at the TWU Law School in Washington, D.C., and uh, many other things, but among them also a visiting professor at the Tsinghua University School of Law in Beijing. You are listening to IP Fridays. Hello and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 49 of IP Fridays. We are very excited to have Professor Joseph Strauss on the show. He is the Emeritus Director of the Max Planck Institute in Munich. But before we jump into the interview, we have some exciting news for you. The Preparatory Committee for the Unified Patent Court has published the rules on court fees and recoverable costs. You can find the rules on the website of the Unified Patent Court at www.unified-patent-court.org 3w.unified-patent-court.org So for example the basic fee for an infringement action will be 11,000 euros plus value-based fees and if the case has a value up to 500,000 euros no additional fee will be charged and it is capped at 50 million euros where an additional fee of 325,000 euros is charged. A revocation action will cost around 20,000 euros and also the fees for all the other actions are also clearly defined in these rules. So what are the recoverable costs? If the value of the proceedings is up to 250,000 euros, the ceiling for recoverable costs is up to 38,000 euros and this goes up to a uh, value of the case uh, of 50 million euros where the ceiling for recoverable costs is 2 million euros. This might seem quite normal or low to my fellow US colleagues but uh, for the colleagues in Germany this is uh, pretty high. Then there is more interesting news. Um, the EPO uh, and in particular the president and the trade unions um, signed a landmark deal. So far only the little bit smaller union, the FFPE EPO, um, has signed the deal which is the um, employees union at the Hague. To be correct, one of the employees unions in the Hague uh, because the SUEPO, the staff union, of the European Patent Office is also present in The Hague. So a memorandum, of, um, a memorandum of understanding was signed by the EPO president um, Battistelli and the chair of the FFPE EPO. 
In my view this is a very good sign. Maybe there will be finally some dialogue between the unions and the president. And now I'm very curious if the SUEPO, the staff union of the European Patent Office, will follow suit. One other thing caught my eyes. Um, the regulations of the Patent Corporation Treaty have been amended and the amended regulations will um, be effective starting from 1st of July 2016 and some other amendments starting at 1st of July 2017. There are a lot amendments to the regulations so I might cover the amendments in a future episode. If you are interested um, in the amendments you can go to www.wipo.int and go to the PCT section of the uh, website. So now let's jump into the interview. I'm very excited to be joined by Professor Dr. Joseph Strauss today. If you don't know who Joseph Strauss is, he is currently Director Emeritus at the Max Planck Institute for Intellectual Property and Competition Law in Munich. He is also Chair of Intellectual Property and Professor at the University of South Africa in Pretoria. He is also Marshall B. Coyne Visiting Professor of International and Comparative Law at the George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C. And he has been recently appointed to, uh, to Visiting Professor at the Tsinghua University Law School in Beijing. Thank you very much for being on the show. It's my pleasure and privilege. So um, um, I want to talk with you about two topics, basically. And one topic, uh, many people in the patent field might think it's a very simple topic, it's novelty. Um, we know that the US patent law provides for a grace period for patents, uh, where publications um, of the inventor are not considered novelty destroying as long as, the, as they are published within the 12 months before the filing date of the patent application. So um, the US has now made this grace period part of the TTP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Treaty, so that all signatories, or so all signing countries of the treaty, have to implement this grace period. First of all, I want to ask you what you think about the grace period in general. Can you explain to our listeners, who are sometimes also trademark professionals and copyright professionals, and not necessarily in the field of patents, the implications in patent law of the grace period? Well, the grace period issue uh, is, has been debated internationally now for some uh, nearly 35 years, uh, and uh, the only real resistant part of the world against the grace period is, has, has been and remains to be Europe. Now, the importance of the grace period especially for uh, the medium-sized and smaller companies and also for academics is uh, evident because the grace period, as it is understood internationally, maybe less so under the U.S. law where some specifics are in place, means that the inventor or his successor in title, the applicant, is shielded, is immune against its own or his or her own uh, disclosures if uh, he or she applies for a patent within 
either six months or 12 months period, depending on the national law, whether it provides for a six or 12 months period. So it is not something which would be linked to the priority, but it is immunizing the inventor or his successor in title against own uh, disclosures. Not publications only, but disclosures, meaning also things which happened in conferences or by uh, uh, trials, field trials, or experiments to which the public uh, had access. So for that reason, this is a very important uh, issue uh, internationally, and it's interesting, you just mentioned that in the Trans-Pacific Treaty, uh, in the provisions of that treaty dealing with intellectual property, also a 12-month grace period was incorporated, meaning that all parties of that treaty will have to introduce into their national laws, if not already existing, such a grace period. Yes, and um, I suspect that the TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment uh, Partnership Treaty, which um, links the U.S. to the European countries, will also contain some similar language. Um, do you think that this is the right vehicle to harmonize patent law? Well, you know, uh, if you have tried all other vehicles over decades and none has really worked to persuade uh, one part of the world that uh, a grace period should be, uh, let's say, present internationally, then this is the last resort because uh, countries, the European countries, not having a grace period actually benefit from the fact that things which can be patented in the United States, in Japan, in Canada, in Brazil, in Mexico, in Argentina, in Australia, can no more be patented in Europe once they have been somewhere published. And uh, I don't know exactly what is the real reason why the Europeans have resisted against the gay spirit, but it is, of course, the fact that we don't have one It's a, it's a kind of international trade distortion because uh, we can still get a patent in the United States, in Japan, as I said, Australia, but vice versa, that doesn't work. And probably this is the reason why potentially the United States will undertake all the necessary steps to get this case period introduced into the uh, transatlantic uh, treaty. Right. Okay. It's I'm, not. It's not. Yes. It's not only an issue, a pedestrian issue of patent law, but it has wider implications, which have not been actually discussed, especially not among patent attorneys, patent offices, and so forth. But I have put this forward uh, years ago, uh, and uh, finally, this has to be leveled. And once again, it has to be understood. It is not a priority right. It doesn't uh, protect the inventor against independent disclosures of third parties. So everybody has to be alert and, uh, of course, aware that he or she may not just rely on a grace period. But it is a very important tool 
especially for smaller and medium-sized companies, but even for bigger companies as uh, empirical studies in Japan have uh, demonstrated. Whenever big companies take a license, let's say from a university or a smaller company, and something has been already published, that, uh, of course, uh, would prevent the company to uh, buy or to, li- to take a license in, in such an invention. So therefore, also for big companies, in many respects, um, grace period is of importance. And that empirical study, which was performed within the so-called Teganze group, mm-hmm. has also demonstrated and actually proven that even big European companies have taken advantage of grace period, meaning not in Europe because we don't have we don't have we have only a limited one in case of abuse, but they have of course benefited from that instrument either in the United States or uh, Japan. And if you allow me only one comment, uh, the fact that this provision is now in the Trans-Pacific Treaty does not necessarily mean that uh, all signatories of that treaty will have uh, in the future the same provision dealing with the grace period because that provision just says uh, 12 months from the inventor or somebody who legally has uh, got information from him or her, but it doesn't say whether it has to be invoked, meaning in Japan, you have to invoke the grace period when you file the patent application. That is not the case in Canada, in Australia, in the United States. So it's not a final harmonization. It's just ensuring that in all member states from Peru to those uh, East Asian countries, a 12-month grace period will exist. Right. Okay. I actually personally agree with the grace period. I think it's a very good and important tool. But uh, I know there has been lots of resistance in the past decades, and uh, you know much better than I do. (laughs) Well, yes, but people have to be frank. Uh, I mean, if they don't want it, they they shouldn't say. uh, Last year, it was a huge congress organized by FICP, AIPPI and the Japanese Patent Office, and one representative from Europe said, well, uh, of course, we are for harmonization and only if it is harmonized, but don't don't bother me with details. (laughs) How can you harmonize something if you don't speak about details? Right, that's true. Um... I also want uh, to uh, pick your brain and hear your um, uh, your voice about a different topic. I mean, you have dealt with uh, very, very many different topics in the field of patent law. And uh, one of these topics that recently got your interest uh, is biotech and in particular genetic sequences. Um, the Netherlands, they want to revise the EU directive, which is the EU directive 98-44-EC, that is uh, regulating the legal protection of biotechnological inventions. Can you briefly explain what this directive is about and why the Netherlands want to change that? Well, the first question I can relatively easily uh, answer. The second one can only be a guess. <laughs> uh, the first one means that originally 
and I may uh, recall that I was among the drafters of that directive, which the first draft was published in 1988, some time ago. So it was the idea that we should have harmonized protection of inventions in the area of modern biotechnology. Uh, it was also the idea that we should, uh, let's say, become competitive with the United States and Japan, where those inventions, especially also, as you said, DNA sequences have, have already been or had already been uh, patented, uh, and uh, where, uh, especially in the United States, the biotech industry uh, became visible and, as you know, is now one of the main sources for uh, the pipeline of new drugs and so forth. Now, this was the basic, meaning that uh, the patentable subject matter should be fixed, uh, taken into account, on the one hand, the ethical considerations, you know, stem cells, embryo, and so forth, but on the other hand, also to ensure that for all, by all means, certain inventions, including DNA sequences, will be patentable if the usual patentability requirements will be met. And as you are probably also aware, this directive has been implemented uh, into the uh, implementing regulations to the European Patent Convention already in 1999 in order to bring in line the practice of the European Patent Office and organization which has no legal link to the European Union. But of course, all member states of the European Union are also parties to the EPC. So that was ensured already in 1999. And if you take the directive and the implementing regulations, you will see that the patentable subject matter, uh, disclosure, uh, disclosure provisions, uh, provisions dealing with ethics, and also provisions dealing with the deposit of biological material are literally uh, uh, overlapping. Now, so far, why do we have that? Because at that time, the fear was that the Germans would do that, the French maybe something else, the Brits against something else, the Dutch against something else, and so forth. Now, uh, the second question is a bit more complicated. You will probably recall that it was the Kingdom of the Netherlands, seconded by the uh, Republic of Italy and also by the Norwegian Kingdom, although they are not actually members of the EU, of course, but they are members of the European Economic Area. They have tried to torpedo the directive from the very beginning. Uh, objecting that the legal basis was not correctly uh, applied. They objected that the dignity of human being and whatever will also not be, is not respected in that, and they lost. The ECJ clearly defined, declared and decided that everything was well done, the legal basis is, was correct, and there is nothing in the directive which would violate either those rights or, for instance, also the CLIPS provisions. So they lost once. Mm -hmm. Now, the idea why they have started again, I have to be a little bit careful in my assumptions, probably has much to do 
with a decision of the Enlarged Board of Appeal of the European Patent Office, according to which products of essentially biological processes, which are not patentable, are patentable. Mm, so, in uh, other words, yes. uh, you cannot get a patent on an uh, essentially biological process, which, to my understanding, was actually wrongly decided by the Enlarged Board of Appeal originally. But with this new decision of this year, you can get a patent on a product of such a, of such a process. Specifically, on the one hand, for broccoli, having a high content of a certain substance, or let's say, or uh, a dried tomato, which loses the fluids still being on the plants or the fruits. So you can't get patents on this. And people are usually not familiar that our neighbors in the Netherlands, that they are extremely strong plant breeders. They are extremely strong multipliers. If you look into the statistics of the European Community Plant Variety Office, you will see that the Netherlands in one year gets granted some 900 certificates, Germany some 400, France some 400, Italy and others far, far away. Spain, for instance, six. Oh. So... It's, it's something I suspect that they wouldn't like to prevent being dependent on patents in this area. And uh, this is why they are trying, let's say, to reopen the discussion of, uh, let's say, the directive on the legal protection of biotechnological inventions. They've got some support in the European Parliament immediately. And... Uh, I was consulted by the German government on this issue. I don't want to be more specific on that. But to me, it is quite clear that uh, there are probably some relatively vested interests behind this initiative. Yes. And the question is uh, whether this is to the good or less good of the EU and uh, the breeding industry and the biotech industry. Mm, I understand. Um, I want to come back to um, the patents for DNA sequences. Um, in 2013, the US Supreme Court rejected uh, human gene patents in the Myriad case, and the Federal Court of Australia first upheld the patent um, in an appeal case and now as I learned from you today it was uh, upheld by the Australian Supreme Court so um, what is your take on a patent that covers uh, genetic sequences well let, let me put first uh, you have probably misunderstood me the high, the high Court of Australia has rejected has rejected has revoked the patent The federal court, yes, criticized the United States because this was the same, the same invention of, of the same myriad company. But the Supreme Court or the High Court, that's the name in Australia, has actually revoked and followed the uh, l l l l line of arguments of the 
Supreme Court of the United States. Okay. Now, you are touching upon something which makes me always a little bit emotional, I must confess, uh, although in my age, somebody should not become emotional. Number one, I have to uh, make it absolutely clear that the United States Supreme Court uh, declared genomic DNA sequences, meaning the sequences which contain the coding and non-coding and the regulatory regions of the DNA, even if they are isolated from the human body, non-patentable as a product of nature. They said, well, isolating that is not enough. You can get a patent on the cDNA, meaning the part, the part of the DNA which uh, is composed of the so-called exons, coding for proteins, hormones, and so forth, mm -hmm. for that, because they do not exist as such isolated in the nature. Now, in Europe, we have in Article 5, second paragraph of the directive, which we have already discussed, a clear provision that DNA sequences, even though they are structurally identical to those uh, occurring in nature are a patentable subject matter as a matter of uh, principle. So that could also be one reason maybe for the Dutch government, but also for some European uh, members of the parliament, that they would like to reopen also this discussion in Europe because there is a clear difference now between the USA and European legal situation. I should add that under the German uh, National Patent Act, in case of those genomic DNA sequences, the applicant must indicate the function, but not only indicate the function of that sequence, but also claim the functions which he or she would like, uh, first has to disclose, and second would like to claim them in the patent. Now, going back to the United States and this Supreme Court decision, I, am, I was astonished when I heard that because the United States Supreme Court actually refers to a decision from 1946 or 7 in the so-called Fung Brothers where uh, the Supreme Court with a majority 5 to 4 decided that if you combine traits which you find that was in plants, which exist, of course, in nature, that combining those traits is not a subject patentable matter. Mm -hmm. It has been criticized by Justice Frankfurter already then. He said, well, this is not an issue of patentable subject matter. It's an issue of non-obviousness. So if you know all those traits, because in combination, they don't exist in nature. So number one is going back to this, very theoretically, to a decision which was, to my understanding and understanding of four justices of the Supreme Court, wrong already at that time, is very doubtful. But much more important to me is that we've caught in the United States and also worldwide then, a great number of patents which were granted on so-called genomic DNA sequences of human origin. Erythropoietin was one, human insulin was the other, 
and so forth. So the entire industry was originally founded, biotech industry, Amgen, Genentech, and so forth, on such patents. And even if, or you, would say, oh, I don't care about patents, I don't care about biotech industry, which is really absolutely unbelievable, the patients got a number of extremely important new drugs based on such patents. And therefore, I'm really concerned with this new wave of ideas because what the Supreme Court of the United States has decided, leaving, of course, course the possibility to get use patents on those DNA sequences for certain uses, now that could... It, it, it has not limited this to the human DNA. This is something which is applicable to the all products of nature. Therefore, the United States Patent and Trademark Office, in his in its examination guidelines, has already implemented this, putting into question the patentability of many, many substances in the area of chemistry. Mm-hmm. So now back to the Australians. I was pleased to see the Federal Court of Australia decision because they criticized, rightly so and very rationally, the U.S. Supreme Court. Now one could ask oneself why the High Court has now followed the U.S. decision. Maybe they were convinced by the arguments. But it is also possible in national context to ask, why should we Australians protect uh, patents granted to so many American companies if the United States themselves, itself, does not protect them? So it means that this idea could be widely used and applied from China to Australia and to many other countries. And I think that this is not a good idea, not because of patents, not because of biotech industry, but because we are all potential patients and potential candidates to use such new drugs. Yes, that's true. And then maybe the pharmaceutical companies lose their incentive to develop these drugs. I understand. Um, so this has been a very interesting uh, interview. Um, if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, um, how would they best reach you? <laughs> <laughs> well, potentially and uh, hopefully only few and a very, very few and short questions because <laughs> I'm not, uh, I mean, in my age, you are not really dependent on getting more and more contacts worldwide. But if so, and with good reason, they can write to me an email under j.strauss with one s at ip.mpg.de. I'm not member and not reachable on any social network. <laughs> I was just I was just teaching in China the last two weeks, and the student said to me, "Can we reach you via why why whatever why 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 watch or whatever?" I said, "No, no, you can reach me only 
by sending me an email and I will be trying to answer it as soon as possible. <laughs> okay, thank you very, very much. That was very nice uh, of you to have time for me. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you and I hope that there will be, let's say, some, even if, even if hidden uh, feedback that people will realize that these ideas which are now around in trying to undermine the system which is in place is not a good one. Yes, we have um, a couple of thousand downloads per month of our um, MP3 files of the podcast, so I hope it will get into some of the heads that are making the decisions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.